This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, sitting here with my son David on my lap, so you might get a little two-year-old in the mix today. And I'm joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello, David. David, you say hi? Yeah, he's not saying hi right now. And Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. Ahalan wasahalan. This week, we have one of our favorite Gentiles. We keep waiting for him to go Jewish. He started at Penn, almost went ZBT or Sammy or AE Pi, but he didn't. Ended up a Catholic priest, still could go Jewish. He went SJ. Right. <laughs> he went SJ. Father James Martin. By the way, those guys take pledges super seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just pledge week. It's pledge your entire life. None of this four years nonsense. Right. He and Liel, uh, they prayed together. I haven't heard this bit yet, but I, I can't wait to hear it. And we spoke with Israeli actress Ayelet Zurer, who is star of the show Losing Alice. But before we get to them, can I update you guys on a little bit little bit of me, a little bit of Oppenheimer? Please. You remember I was talking about how, because all the world is starting email newsletters using Substack and other servers, I wanted to start an actual newsletter that got mailed in the mail on a piece of paper. You're like, what if? Same idea, but none of the immediacy and convenience. That's right. <laughs> like three barriers for the exact same thing. I received the inaugural missive of your newsletter. I was so excited to get it in the mail. I saw it in my mailbox. The typewriter phone threw me off because remember the last time I got a piece of like unsolicited mail. I mean, I guess I did solicit this. You asked if I wanted it. And I said, definitely. It said, Defsies. Here's my address. <laughs> but last time I got like a random piece of mail, it was from a Jehovah's Witness. And so I, I saw, I like the first thing I saw <laughs> on the outside was like, Philip Roth has email. And I'm like, am I getting anti-Semitic mail to my home now? <laughs> uh, but I opened it. It was not anti-Semitic. It was just Semitic. It was just Semitic. <laughs> it was Semitic and anti a few random things. But I will say like, Mark, it was a delight to receive. A delight. Oh, and that was before you'd even read it. Like it, content aside, it's just nice to get mail. It's so nice. It's folded. There's like that little circle piece of tape. It looks great. So that's what I want to talk about. You know, yeah, the content of the first issue, it went out to a couple hundred elite subscribers, mostly members of the J Crew or hosts of the of the podcast or old high school friends of mine whom I added unbidden to the list because I had to get up to 200 to get the bulk mailing rate. Content aside, you know, I wrote a little bit about how I discovered the late Philip Roth's email account. I wrote a little bit about some music I'm enjoying, wrote a little bit about my kids, et cetera. But the thing I've really learned is how hard it is to do a bulk mailing because, okay, you print them all out. Unless you have a super duper elite machine or you use some super duper elite server or company you're basically folding them all yourself. Like the, the writing was the easiest part. It took me an hour to write, hour and a half, two hours. Folding them all and then putting the little sticker on <laughs> several more hours. Now, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that precisely why one has five children? Right. Now, the problem is that my children, if I ask them, hey, would you fold this for me? First of all, David's a little too young. You need some manual dexterity. This is a precise thing. But the others, they're not bribable. I mean, I could make them, I guess. I could make this their chore instead of emptying the dishwasher or taking out the trash or whatever. Then you're stuck at emptying the dishwasher. Right. Like there's, no, there's no win there. What I'd like to do is be able to pay them minimum wage, sub-minimum, $5. The amount of money it would have taken me to do this at that age would have been like 50 cents, right? Well, you could have gotten a lot with that then. 20 bucks. They won't do it. A fribble and a fisherman jig, you would have done it. 100%. I can offer them anything. They won't do it because my children don't seem to have any material needs. Like they go to the library for their books. They have whatever devices they need to watch their YouTube families. And they're very into like Mormon homeschooling families on YouTube. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what you guys are. You know, honestly, I tried this with Clara and I was like, I'll give you 10 bucks a week to do this. Yeah. And she's like, what do I need 10 bucks for? <laughs> so I'm not going to go to 20. So I'm literally stuck. Kids today. So here's the thing. I want more subscribers. I want people to go to markoppenheimer.com slash newsletter and subscribe. I want a thousand subscribers. But if I get there, I'm going to have to find a local underemployed teen with like a bad cigarette habit to offer money to. I need someone for whom 10 or 20 bucks a week 
will be meaningful. It's not a grown-up. Yeah, they need to be old enough where they can fold on the line, like fold nicely. They need dexterity. If the drugs they're doing with my money mean they're unable to actually fold three ways and then put a sticker on it, I'm screwed. So it's actually a very small pool of workers. Here, by the way, is a genius idea for a new app. It's an app that connects people like you with children age <laughs> 8 to 12. With small fingers. Who, who, who need like little money <laughs> this for... This does for, not sound good. This is just great. <laughs> this sounds very dangerous and illegal. Isn't that actually known as the we, American economy? We will call this app Sweatshop. <laughs> So let's go where the news is good. Let's get right out of our lives and into Israel. Leo Leibowitz, do you have any news from Eretz Yisrael, from the land of milk and honey for us? I have news. Is it good? I don't know. This week, the Israeli Supreme Court handed down by an eight to one majority a decision ruling that, I'm reading now from the Jerusalem Post, that conversions performed in Israel by the reform and conservative movements will be recognized for purposes of citizenship. In other words, people undergoing reform or conservative conversions in Israel will be recognized as Jews under the law of return, meaning that they and their immediate families, including grandchildren, can make Aliyah. Now, this is actually, it's one of these things that sounds like, okay, well, it, it has a somewhat limited scope, but it actually is somewhat of a really big deal. This comes at the, at the tail end of a very long process in which all different factions, including the chief rabbinate, try to find some workable solution. Now, this will really surprise you. They're all Jews, and therefore they could not find a compromise. They could not find a working way to make some kind of conversion process that everyone will acknowledge. And therefore, the Supreme Court had to intervene, saying in their decision, we really didn't want to do this. But this just opens the door to the next and potentially much more inflammatory stage in the conversion wars in which the reform and conservative movements would say, okay, well, now we demand that these rights will be extended far and wide, even to conversions performed outside of Israel. And the Orthodox are likely to say, well, now we're going to triple down on our own authority and say that no one except the people we recognize can be called a Jew. So lose-lose for everyone. Congratulations to both sides. So I will say I don't understand this story because it's like, I thought it was a good thing at first. It was like, oh, these things are going to be recognized that are outside of the Orthodox world. But it sounds like you're saying it's actually more complicated than that. But why is it the fault of the Supreme Court rather than the fault of the chief rabbinate? Oh, no, I'm, I'm not blaming the Supreme Court at all. The chief rabbinate has a lion's share of the blame here. I mean, this is precisely where we need good conversation. I mean, the Supreme Court went as far as saying, guys, we don't want to do this. Please don't make us do this. Don't make them be the body that has to do it. Exactly. Like, this is a halachic decision. Like, why should we make this? The rabbinate should have compromised. It failed to. If someone has never been to Israel, doesn't really understand, like, this actually has lots of implications, right? The idea of weddings and conversions, where they're recognized, how they have to be done. Could you give us just like a primer, a primer on like what it means if you are not Orthodox in Israel and want to get married, say. The question is not so much what happens if you're not Orthodox. The question is what happens if you want a wedding that is not religious. And the answer is good luck to you. The country currently does not offer civil unions of, of any meaningful sort. So you fly, to, you fly to Cyprus or wherever you want. But who marries you? Can a rabbi marry you in Israel that, who is not Orthodox? A rabbi can marry you. You know, your neighbor can marry you. Sure. Would would a state recognize you as being officially married? No. Unless, of course, you fly, say, to Cyprus or anywhere else, perform some civil union, come back and report that that 
perfection. Right. They recognize marriage is done outside the country, Correct. but not unorthodox marriage is done inside the country. But there's another problem here, Liel, right? Which is a bigger problem that there is no solution for except for the chief rabbinate to kind of move on this, right? Which is that there are lots and lots of Jewish citizens, I'm thinking of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Israelis who are not halakhically Jewish. As far as the chief rabbit is concerned, and they're probably right in a lot of these cases, the mothers were not Jewish, but they were at least a quarter Jewish. So under the law of return, they got to come. They wanted to come. They wanted to serve in the army. They're super patriotic by and large to generalize. But because mom's mom was not Jewish back in Russia, back when, you know, religion was forbidden and all, they actually are not Jews for the purpose of marriage. So they don't get to marry anybody, even if they're willing to go to an Orthodox wedding, they can't get one. That's right. This is precisely where we needed the chief rabbinate to open its mind and open its heart and come up with a process that is lenient and loving and welcoming and all-embracing. And instead, it tripled down on power plays and it refused to budge and compromise, leading us to this here debacle, which again, is only likely to cause more and more consternation because what we need, you're absolutely right, is a solution. And for that solution to happen, the chief rabbinate has to be the sort of part that comes out and says, guys, let's find some kind of compromise. Would this be a final solution? It will be a final solution (laughs) for the Jewish problem. After that, there will be no other. Because this is a big Jewish problem. Stephanie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is a serious conversation. No, with that pun, you've earned the right to take us to the next bit of news to the Jews. (laughs) Take us out to Seattle, where a final solution was narrowly averted. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, this is one of those just such a good story. So earlier this year, Amazon unveiled a new app icon. So like a few of the Amazon app and you go to it on your phone, it changed. It used to be a shopping cart. Now it's sort of like a, it's supposed to look like a delivery box from Amazon. It has the like logo, which kind of looks like a upward arrow. And it has like a bit of tape at the top, blue tape. But the problem is, is that that upward arrow looks like a little bit of like a smiley face. And that bit of tape has like a corrugated edge. So it's like up, down, up, down, up, down. So who does that remind us of? That tiny little thing? So the tiny little, little bitty mustache above the smiling face, which I mean, the smiling face is the off part here, but everyone was sort of just like, does Amazon's new app logo look like Hitler? (laughs) Does Amazon's (laughs) new logo have a Hitler stash? And they have changed the logo. They have just basically made it like a a straight-edged piece of tape. So it doesn't have that zigzag. I have to say, this bit of craziness where, I mean, the Times did a great article on all that sort of summarized and linked out to all of the places where people have seen, in some cases, you know, racist imagery, not overtly racist imagery, not like that's a picture of of a mammy or of a hook-nosed Jew or whatever, but imagery that some people, if you squint hard enough, think sort of resembles something, you know, like the, the way that the, the study carols at Yale's Cross Campus Library, if you looked at them from above or swastikas, but how often were you hovering on the ceiling looking down at them as swastikas, right? So one of the great ones, I didn't even realize this, they, they linked out to a story from uh, 2013 about a JCPenney billboard that showed a tea kettle oh, yeah. that looked like <laughs> Hitler, mm-hmm. like the handle was his head and the little knob came up. It was his mouth and mustache. I mean, his arm is up because it's the spout. <laughs> it's just so hard. Like, and then of course the companies always apologize and yank them and, you know, oh, we're going to pulp every one of these billboards. Right. And honestly, I really would put this to the J. Crew. Please write to me. And I, I sincerely want someone to make the case that this makes any sense at all because I don't believe, I mean, is the argument that people who have you know, some sort of intergenerational or personal trauma around Hitler, which is a very small community of people, actually, as as the people who lived in Hitler's time are dying off, but that, that people who react negatively to Hitler might unconsciously react to a subliminal Hitler message? Or is it just that, is it just a kind of, pure, I, it strikes me as a kind of puritanism, like pretty soon we'll be saying no little brown brush mustaches because in some universe, 
they will recall Hitler to somebody. I mean, if it's that hard to see, who cares? I'm totally baffled by these things. I just think it's funny. If the tea kettle kind of looks a little bit like Hitler, isn't that kind of funny? The tea kettle looked a ton like Hitler. Like even the way it had like a kind of hair swoop, like with a handle. It's, it's just insane that no one, because how much it looks like Hitler to all of us, like how did you put, maybe it's because it's on a billboard. No, it just looks so much like Hitler. I disagree. It only looked like Hitler to you once it was pointed out to you. And then no. of course you couldn't unsee it. But if right. you were driving down the 405 or whatever they call with their definite articles in LA and you saw it, you wouldn't be like, whoa. Hitler tea kettle. You know what it is? It's like it's like the arrow between like the E and the X and like the FedEx yes. logo. It's like someone has to point that out to you before you see it. I guess I'm speaking as someone who can find a swastika in any tile pattern, no matter how intricate. <laughs> I'm so close to finding one on my bathroom floor. It's almost there. It's not quite there. It's a Sanskrit symbol, Stephanie. By the way, that should, should we start playing the same game with like other household objects? Like, oh, my cheese grater looks like Goering. Like, why just Hitler? <laughs> it's all Hitler all the time. Someone posted this in our Facebook group and someone responded being like, how come no one cared when I showed this sandwich slicer that it was legitimately a swastika because it cuts four pieces and needs like the outer <laughs> rings as well. I don't know. We say never forget, right? These things keep us never forgetting. So I'm not upset. I don't know. Like, I like, I get it. I think, I think these things are funny, but I'm also just like, yeah, let's not forget what Hitler looked like. Let's never forget. That's the point of the tea kettle. They were actually trying to keep historical memory alive and we won't let them. J. Crew, would you write in on orthodoxtablemag.com or call us 914-570-4869? My thesis is I actually care about real Hitler, but I don't care about accidental Hitler. Are you back? I'm just glad people are seeing this. Like, I'm glad I'm not the only one who's like crazy enough to see this. Like, everyone's just like, that looks like Hitler. Wait, we will have forgotten. Historical yes, memory exactly. will have died when we cease to see accidental Hitlers in household it's appliances. Hundo percent what I'm saying. And I think we should continue. I don't know. I'm, I'm happy about this. You had me at hundo percent, Stephanie Bunning. <laughs> hundo P. And before I let us move on to real things about this episode, I need to tell you the best piece of news of the Jews just came in over the transom. Charles Barkley, former NBA star, NBA commentator, his daughter's getting married this weekend, and she is getting married to a Jewish man, which we know because Charles Barkley went on Jimmy Kimmel's show and basically said, I'm nervous about the wedding because I'm told I'm going to be lifted up in a chair. And so Jimmy Kimmel's like, <laughs> like looks at him confused and is like, oh, is she marrying someone Jewish? And he says, yes. And I'm being told, he's like, I've been losing weight because I need to be lifted up in a chair. And he basically says, listen, I need all Jewish people on deck. I can only get so skinny by Saturday. It's like I'm a soldier, all hands on deck. So by the time this episode airs, he will have already been lifted. I, we will see what the crew at that wedding could do to Charles Barkley. I'm sure there'll be video footage. I'm so excited. How many Yidden does it take to lift that dude up? I mean, he's six foot five. He's... <laughs> A large man. A massive man. Not a lean six foot five. Never was. No. Christiana Barkley, Ilya Hoffman, Mazel Tov. We wish you nothing but the best. <laughs> Simon Tov and Mazel I want to Tov. Charles Barkley in a yarmulke. He'll need the Bukharan one. He's bald. He'll need the Josh Cross yarmulke to stay on his head. Friends, it's March Madness. That's right. Not the NCAA Sweet 16 or Elite 8 or Thrilling 32 for college basketball, but that more important March Madness competition, Jewish Name of the Year. As you guys know, we have been collecting the best Jewish names, and we've put them into a bracket, a Sweet 16 of Jewish names. You can go back a few episodes and listen to our conversation with Stefan Fatsis, one of the co-founders of the Name of the Year competition. We talked about what goes into a great name, a yichus, heritage, mouthfeel, simple, indescribable pleasure that we take in saying it, silliness, 
So many things go into the Jewish name of the year, but ultimately it's like Justice Powell said about pornography. You can't define it, but you know it when you see it. We would say you know it when you hear it. What is the greatest Jewish name? We put the call out to you. You got back to us on Twitter, on Facebook, in our email inbox, on voicemail, and we have collected 16 names that are so great that we may not be able to choose a winner, but we have to choose a winner. We're called to do it. So we are going to put this bracket on our Facebook page. We're going to put it in the newsletter, which you can subscribe to by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and asking to be added to the newsletter list. We're going to put it on Instagram and you're going to hear it right now. Okay. In the Western bracket, Carol Shackmaster faces off against Trudy Hope Schlamowitz in the first round. Ari Goldhammer will hope to score a victory over Tequila Minsky. In a battle of the H's, Hepzibah Maidenbaum will be taking on Hyman Nutkiss. That's N-U-T-K-I-S, Hyman Nutkiss. And in an old-school Yiddish smackdown, Moisha Oisher faces off against Zissel Hessel. In the Eastern bracket... The P's, Pesach Polanski, squares off against that big old Yid, Patrick Michael O'Connell. Talia Wiener-Weiner, that's Wiener with an E-I, Weiner with just an I, hopes to prevail over Maximus Schechter. Again, in an old-school Yiddish smackdown, Muttel Dimschitz, that's D-Y-M-S-H-I-T-S, throws down against Shmuel Bialy. And in a true contest of oddfellows, we have a name that goes back to Torah and to mid-millennium Ashkenaz, Hadassah Katzenellenbogen, squaring off against, you can Google her, Dr. Gravity Goldberg. So there you have it. Shackmaster, Shlomowitz, Goldhammer, Minsky, Maidenbaum, Nutkiss, Oisher, Pessel, Polanski, O'Connell, Wienerweiner, Schechter, Dimschitz, Bialy, Katzenellenbogen, and Goldberg. We need your thoughts. What's your favorite name of all of these 16? Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com. Hit us up on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. And on a forthcoming episode, we will present to you the Elite Eight. Jewish name of the year, 5781. Let the competition begin. Ayala Zur stars in the new Apple TV Plus series, Losing Alice. We spoke with her about some of her roles in our favorite Israeli shows, like Shtisel and the Israeli version of In Treatment, plus movies like Munich. We are so excited to be here with Ayala Zur. And I have to say, Ayala, like seeing you here on screen, I'm nervous, I'm worried, I'm anxious seeing you. This series is intense. Can you tell us a little bit about Losing Alice? First of all, thank you for having me. It's a story about a woman who's a successful filmmaker, creator, who hasn't had a film for past 10 years since she was raising her kids. And she's not really realizing where she's at until she meets a young female on the train who happens to be a phenomenal screenwriter and also a very free creature. And that relationship between these two really spirals and sends us into a uh, rabbit hole. It has like a very strong sort of like David Lynch vibe. It is so freaky and so suspenseful and things take turns emotionally from seemingly innocent to really freaking menacing very quickly. I've always wondered, like on the set, as you sort of embody this, I mean, is the atmosphere just kind of like freewheeling and then you do your thing and then everyone bakes for lunch? Or is there like a feeling of constant unedginess? Because watching this sometimes, like you finish an episode like, man, I need to like go have a snack and a nap and I'm exhausted in the best way. Your experience was my experience on set. 
I would finish a day of filming and be exhausted on so many levels. <laughs> it's a very strange thing when you, you're an actor and you have a filmmaker, Sigalavim, that actually is the writer and the director at the same time. The process can go really deep because of that. It starts with the reading and a process of like having a discussion because I'm based in LA and Sigal is in Israel. The beginning of this whole work process was really on WhatsApp, Skype. We're talking pre-Zoom time. And then we move into the rehearsals where you tap your toe into the water, but internally, you know where you're headed, but not quite, at least not for me. The rehearsal process for me is a very strange process where I'm like really just overcoming my fears because I already see where it's going, but I just have to launch myself there. And then after that, when the camera's on, something happens and that's this whole time is a very demanding and challenging and energetically sucking <laughs> your everything from you really all the way to the end. And most of my scenes are like that. I have, I can count on my hand scenes that I was waiting to be in because I knew they were the light and the fun stuff. And I knew that there's so much darkness and overcoming fear and very intense emotions that are very suffocated. They're not even expressed, so you don't have the release. <laughs> there is something that is completely fascinating because... It begins with this feeling of, which I think is the hardest thing to capture in drama. It's a sense of boredom, right? It's a sense of a character whose life is in, in a sort of a holding pattern, the sense of a woman who's, you know, kind of stuck. Just watching you doing nothing in the most existential sense, right, is a sort of completely unnerving experience because you could really feel the weight of this, which is a very difficult thing to convey. How do, how do you prepare for that? How do you handle that, the sort of nothingness? Well, it's never nothingness. It's actually a lot of thoughts and a lot of emotions that are just more like a destruction rather than a building. Right, but they're all internal. They're internal, it's correct. But everything is a very much alive inside. Everything that she sees, everything she feels, everything she hates about herself, about the surrounding, the uncomfortable physical state she's in. It's all there. It's just that it seems like maybe nothing, but it's, it's not. The same type of war goes into that as in any other work. The scenes in the house and the scenes, particularly in the two first episodes, that's where... Because Alice really goes through three stages, I would say, and the show goes, goes into three stages. So this is only the first stage, right? The boredom, the intense nothingness that she's experiencing at the beginning where everybody else has a life and she feels like it's for her, it's not happening. So there was a lot of work done into that too. It, it, there were conversations about that. It's very strange because we tend to hide those emotions. I think in life, I think most people want to show success, want to show they're happy, want to show everything is okay, you know. But underneath that, there's so much more. And I think what Sigal is doing so lovely is that everything is on the page. She really is able to put on the page the feeling of the opposite of that. And I think it, it sinks in. And then when you actually there, if you're really there, it's just part of you. So Losing Alice, this amazing, wild, wacky show, I can speak as an American who is obsessed with Israeli TV. I mean, there's such a craving for these really, really intense, psychologically thorny shows, whether they're about war or, you know, 
domesticity. I mean, there really is something that I think Americans, not just Jewish Americans, but Americans are really, really loving about Israeli TV. So you live in L.A. I mean, what is it like to be sort of like on the the next big Israeli hit show for Americans? It's really exciting. It's not even just America. It's 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 a phenomena that's beyond my perception even. I, I mean, I can't even perceive the amount of people. We're talking 100 countries all across the world. It's really massive. And when you go in into a show like that, you never know what's going to happen. I'm always with low expectations because it's not the reason I'm doing things. <laughs> so I never know. I know when it's good. I can tell it's very good. I can tell when it's not good. And sometimes it has nothing to do with success, right? In this particular show, I had a feeling that it's so unique that there's no way people are not going to feel something. And it's exciting when it comes out. The beginning of the show was in Israel. So it came out and it was okay. It wasn't like a huge success. I mean, it was successful, but it wasn't a huge success in the sense that there were people saying this is not quite Israeli and it doesn't show Israel and it's uh, aiming at the American crowd. And Sigal was saying, well, if I was really aiming at the American crowd, I would do something a little more simple and a little more. (laughs) And now what's happening is with amazing reviews and people loving it is that she's getting what she deserved, I think. I'm here with two Israelis. I have a very, like, in the weeds question. Where is this beautiful house that your character and her husband and family lives? Is it a suburb outside of Tel Aviv? <laughs> yes, it is. I've never seen a house like that. It was a beautiful place to shoot in. And we spent a week there. The inside, though, is a different location. The outside, what you see from the outside, the windows. And I think what I love about this house, and I remember Sigal texting me when she found the house. She said, ah, oh, we found the house because <laughs> this was to her such an important... It's like a character. It is a character. It also reflects some of the voyeurism that we have in the show, looking from the outside into the inside, where things are happening and we can't do anything about it. Similar to what we see on Ellie, similar to what we see of some of the characters. And I would definitely live there. Alice hates it, though. Alice really hates it. For many, many reasons, but she hates it. I mean, in so many ways, it's the symbol of both her and her husband's, you know, her husband is this famous Israeli actor. It's like the success. I mean, someone referenced the dryer and I was like, I didn't know people had dryers. I thought everyone in Israel just like hung their stuff up. I mean, there really is a sense of financial security and like security in so many ways. But then at the same time, you have your daughter seeing something scary. Like, I don't know. I just remember watching the first episode and thinking like, I have no idea what's going to happen on this show but I'm terrified. And I know it's not horror, right? You're not, it's not like a slasher thing, but it's a psychological thriller. And you, you spend the whole first episode being like, what is going to happen? It's going to be something couch. intense. Yeah. But I'm like, it could be anything. I want to get back to the house though for a second. Is there a difference shooting in Los Angeles and, and shooting in Israel? Is there a different kind of atmosphere, a different kind of vibe that occurs when you're doing this show? I say, which is a very different show. You also a star of, is it just a different kind of take or is work work and the process is the process wherever you happen to be? The answer is yes and no. It's a yes in terms of the circus, theater slash movie people are always the same. And it's quite the same vibe. It's almost like having writers in the same room from all over the world and stock market people from all over the world. <laughs> and But of course, it's different in the sense that it's a fast moving machine that is supported by a lot of passion. Because it's not an easy thing to make a movie in Israel or even a TV show. It's You pack a lot of scenes in the same day. It's a budget thing, really. So the budgets are not as big. 
the outcomes are sometimes astounding in comparison to the budget. And there's another factor that's slightly different, the um, sense of like everybody's involved. So you can have this person holding a light and this person telling you, oh, you know, I have an idea, you know, how to do this and that. And that thing is not happening any place else. Well, n not quite. Maybe not in the U.S. The U.S. is very, it's very clear whose job is whose. You're not supposed to step in anybody's ground. You know, everybody has his own thing and they never say, oh, I have an idea for you. <laughs> you know, it's a more family oriented work. So I, I grew up in Israel and, you know, I've been watching you in television shows and in movies since we were both very young. Are there any kind of insights that you have gained or any kind of understandings that you have come to that as a young actress would have seemed totally bizarre to you? I've learned something that I really cherish. Sometimes things come to you for a reason and you just have to go with it. I remember this film, TV film that came to me and they wanted me for a role that I was quite, I felt like I was not quite right for it, but I had a lull and I wanted to do it. It wasn't great. I mean, the script was great, but the director was okay. And then it's just, it wasn't, the, the thing was not like, wow, you know, you really want to. And I remember doing it and thinking, eh, I'll just do it because I have nothing else. And sure enough, this is the movie that actually somehow traveled across oceans to a small video store in London. And a casting director many years later saw this movie because she had to cast for Steven Spielberg Munich. Oh, so Steven Spielberg <laughs> isn't the director who is only okay. Yeah. And that's why what he's, he's, he's seen. He's seen that specific film and that specific film worked for him, you know. And you never know what's going to lead to what if you sometimes it's the right thing to just to say yes. Because there's a sense of like, oh, I'll just do the good things or I'll just do the things that I'm really, I understand or I'm good at. And sometimes I just really like to take risks and just do things because they came to me. That's such a good lesson, though. I mean, this idea that like in some video store, someone who was casting for Munich, which it was a, you know, a movie you were great in, like that's that's such a good thing to keep in mind, especially I imagine as a working actor, right, where you don't know which, is this the right role? Is this the right role? Am I going to make the, you know, but I can't believe we've gone this long in the interview without talking about Stissel. You play Elisha. I mean, again, that is one of the shows that really marked this like Israeli renaissance TV for an international audience. Did that sort of prepare you for this role? I mean, because you're living in L.A. I mean, have you been in L.A. through all of this? I mean, you're sort of experiencing these shows hitting America as both an Israeli and, and sort of a L.A. resident now. I've been here for quite a while. Shifu came to me in the right time again. They sent me the script right when I lost uh, one of my closest friends, almost like a surrogate mother she was for me. And and. So I was really devastated and to go back to Israel to film was not something I was looking forward to just because I dreaded the flight and then landing there and just knowing that I'm, I won't see her. So that was really hard. And then they sent me the script and that Isheva, you know, beyond the comedy and beyond the poetry that she is, she's also someone who lost someone really dear to her twice. So Immediately, I obviously connected to this and, and I said, yes. And then we filmed it and it was done. It was really successful in Israel, but you know, that's it. And then a bunch of years later, I, with Instagram and social media, I, I started receiving text messages from all over the world <laughs> saying, Shtiso, Shtiso. And I was like, Abisheva. And I was really confused about what was going on. <laughs> then 
I realized after talking to the creators that it was actually sold to Netflix. <laughs> and there's a wave of Stisse lovers all over the world. And it was crazy because it hasn't subsided. Just two days ago, a good friend of mine, an actor from England, sent me an email and said he was um, on um, group WhatsApp with the top actors of England. And he said, they're all talking with, about Stisse. And it made me laugh <laughs> so hard. Because you never know. You just never know. I mean, I can tell, again, when something is well-written, but you never know if it's going to be successful because there's no connection between the two. I mean, I love that because you have these sort of like Hamish almost, like Israeli shows that become really big international hits. And then you've also been in the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> you know, you've been in Angels and Demons with Tom Hanks. And so I imagine you've had such a range of, exp of filming experiences. Like one of the questions our producers want, the first question they had on their list was like, what is it like to work with Tom Hanks? Which is like so funny because I feel like all our listeners would be like, what is it like to work with the Schissel cast? And like, who are yeah. like, almost like as big celebrities to them as Tom <laughs> Hanks. So tell us about Tom Hanks. Well, I mean, it's it's a, it was a great experience. I learned so much from him. He surprised me all the time. From the first time I've seen him in the um, screen test and all the way till much, much, much later, his wisdom, his humor, he's one of the sharpest, smartest people I know, but he's also really human in the, in, in the best way. I, I've learned some good things from him. One of the things I've learned from him was uh, if you don't have something good to say, don't say anything. <laughs> and he lives by it. That sounds like something Tom Hanks would say. Right? I mean, you would <laughs> think exactly. So he is what people think of him. He really is. He's a mentor and he he's a phenomenal human being. And the Stiesel people are just really <laughs> fun. I mean, Michael Aloni is a friend and Netta is a friend and the writers, Ori, one of the writers is, is a good friend. We just texted a few days ago because I send him things that people write to me because I think writers usually don't get that very often. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a shame because really they should be the superstars. We fly as high as they let us. And I stayed friend with uh, Haggai, who's the guy who created In Treatment that was one of the first shows to come out of Israel. Because we've done that together in Israel. Yeah, I mean, you were on, what is it, Betty Pool? Is that how you say it? Betty Pool. Betty yeah, Pool. In, Betty Pool, in treatment. You were like at the vanguard of this, like, Israeli to America exporting of good TV. Because we actually, like, we need your TV. <laughs> we need you. <laughs> I mean, how lucky? How lucky am I? How lucky are we? Ayada, thank you so much. The show is Losing Alice. It is amazing. And I can't wait to finish the season. Wait till we get to seven and eight. Oh, no, I'm oh, scared. Lord. I'm so scared. Handle seven and I'm eight. scared for you. Text me after that. I want to hear what you think. I will, because yes. I have no idea where any of this is going. I mean, it could all be a dream sequence, and it could end in, like, a bloodbath. Like, I would not be surprised with either one. And now I shall lock my lips. Ayala, <laughs> sir, thank you so much. This is such a treat, and good luck with everything. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. To the mailbox. Stephanie, the first letter is crying out to be read by you. Hi, Liel, Stephanie, and Mark. I was listening to your recent episode and your discussion about fraternities and sororities. I am an alum of Phi Sigma Sigma, Phi Sig Sig, at the University of Illinois. 
Feisigs are not a historically Jewish sorority, but rather was the first non-sectarian sorority. At my chapter, there were only a few Jewish members when I was there, as many of the Jews who participated in Greek life at the U of I did tend to join one of the historically Jewish sororities and fraternities. There was DBT, Sammy, and AEPI chapters at the U of I. But I always felt welcomed by my sisters. And because I kept kosher, when I lived in the sorority house, our house mom always made sure to set aside an area in the freezer where I could keep my goodies that I'd brought from home. Let's just say that no one ever tried to steal my gefilte fish. Deborah Klein, I love that. That's amazing. There was a house mom at U of I protecting the kosher corner of the freezer. She also tinfoiled everything for Passover. <laughs> that is amazing. Hello, Unorthodox. First, I love your show. It always gets me laughing and leaves me thinking. Regarding Vashti, I have to disagree with the theory I heard on your show last week. The way I learned the story is Vashti didn't refuse the king because she didn't want to dance naked. Instead, she refused because she had a rash or pimples. Had she had clear skin, she would have happily shown off her naked body. So she refused out of vanity, <laughs> not out of principle. I don't think this wins her a place amongst the great feminists. She should not be revered. Love you guys. Randy Cohen. I love that this is the first ever proactive advertisement that we saw on TV. <laughs> this is the world's first Neutrogena commercial. <laughs> Can I interject and say that uh, last week when Liana was sharing the perm story with our family, my daughter Liana was sharing the perm story. She said King Ahasuerus had a big party and he wanted his wife Vashti to come. And then she whispers, should I tell the version where she has a tail or where she has pimples? <laughs> so that's a thing. Sorry if I made her. Liana. It's out there, people. There's the Midrash for you. I want to play this little voice memo that came in. Still, a thread still going strong. Jewish autocorrect. This person was trying to say Aish, referring to Aish HaTorah, the fire of Torah, which is a, an ultra-Orthodox outreach group. And uh, his iPhone didn't want to hear Aish. Aish.com just changed to Amish.com. And we can all die in peace. Aish going to Amish. So simple. So perfect. Was confused when he got to Aish country in Lancaster. Carriages everywhere. All the horses go to shul. Hi, amazing podcast hosts. I love it when people begin like that. If, if, were you trying to get onto our show by beginning with hi, amazing podcast hosts? Well, it worked. I'm writing about the short discussion in episode 245 about why Sukkot is sometimes spelled with a TH. It's not related to how it should be pronounced. It's not a TH sound as our eyes would have us believe. It's actually a way of differentiating in transliteration between a tet and a toff, but both are pronounced according to the Sephardic pronunciation, like a T. Thanks for your amazing podcast from your number one fan in Modi'in Israel, Jen Gar. Leah, give us the next one. I'm in the process of converting and discovering your podcast has been part of my very Jewish year. I've started a Jewish family, joined a conservative synagogue, and started working at an Orthodox day school. After coming from an Episcopal boarding school, big change. I think more than anything, you three have given me the confidence to participate fully in those spaces. Amanda. Amanda, let me tell you, Welcome home. And you have given us the confidence to participate fully in those spaces as well. By the way, I want to watch the version of The Queen's Gambit, which is Amanda starting out at the chess scene at the Episcopal boarding school and then the chess scene at the Orthodox day school. Like, I want that. Netflix, give me that. The chess is better at the Orthodox day school. I'll just, it's a spoiler. Sure. But the chess is much better at the Orthodox school. So there's a note that came in. It's directed at me as the pod bizzer here, as the pod business woman. And this is from longtime listener Scott Mezzestrano, who says we are his favorite podcast, despite the fact that, as he writes, just a note that for events on or after the second Sunday in March and before the first Sunday in November, you should note the time as under daylight savings time. That's EDT, Eastern Daylight Time, unless the event takes place somewhere that does not observe daylight savings time, DST. 
Not doing so creates confusion for people who live somewhere that does not observe DST. For example, as we did, if you list an event in NYC on March 25th as starting at 7 p.m. EST, someone who lives in Arizona might think the time differential is only two hours because they do not observe daylight savings time. This will cause them to sign on an hour late. I'm the one who writes this copy. I can never remember what the difference is. I always Google it. I always get it wrong. Scott, I'm sorry. And I don't want you to be late. Your daylight savings time disabled, Stephanie. That's your disability. I wouldn't call it a disability. It's more just like I never really paid attention. Like time zones don't, I don't understand. I never know what LA is like. It's three hours before, three hours after. It's. I think you kind of just don't care. I think you could figure it out and you just don't want to. No, it takes me a second. It's like this weird intersection of math and geography. Both things I don't understand. (laughs) And they converge here. So Scott... I'm sorry. I never want you to be late. I'll fix them. Listeners, we love hearing from you. Please write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us and leave a pithy and peppy voice memo, 914-570-4869. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Fans of Unorthodox will know Father James Martin from his numerous previous appearances on our show. He's our favorite Jesuit priest. He's probably the only Jesuit priest who's been on the show, but he's still our favorite. And he's editor-at-large of the magazine America. 
His new book is Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone, and it inspired Liel, shockingly, to have a one-on-one conversation about how we pray. I just want to say I'm not sure that Father James Martin is my favorite Jesuit priest. I think that was really presumptuous of you. I have a, a, a smattering, I have a smorgasbord of Jesuit priests. Well, no, our collective. When I want a favorite. He's top seven, maybe maybe top five. Well, that's why you didn't get to talk to him. I know a whole passel of Jesuit priests. I know a clutch of Jesuits. Well, he'll pray for you, Mark. He'll pray for, for Jesus to change your heart. If you're listening to the show, you know that what I'm about to say is 100% true. I will not lie in the presence of, of such a holy guest who also happens to be one of, if not the all-time favorite, someone I consider not only, I hope, a friend, but also a real teacher, a real Rebbe, if you will, someone who has inspired me in so many ways and the author of an incredible new book that, as far as I'm concerned, even though it was written by a Jesuit priest, should be required reading for every Jew. It is called Learning to Pray, a guide for everyone. Welcome back, Father James Martin. I am so happy to be back. I love being on your show. I just love it. We love having you and we have so much to discuss. But first, because you're here uh, and, and you're wearing the outfit, I'm in a confessional mood right now. Do you mind if I, if I confess a little bit? Feel free. Hey, that's my job. <laughs> so look, I've been praying three times daily, as the Jewish faith requires, for about five years now. And I do my absolute best to come to prayer with, with intentionality, with seriousness, with an open heart and mind. And even though I really do my best, I find that very often I encounter a lot of these setbacks that you so wonderfully describe in your new book about prayer. I get distracted. Sometimes it feels dry. Sometimes I stop and think, isn't it a bit ridiculous to just be talking into the ether and expect that God is listening? So my question for you is this, is it just me or is prayer, to use a technical Latin term, really freaking hard? (laughs) It is not just you. And one of the things I One of the reasons I wrote the book is to remind people that prayer can be dry for people. It can feel like nothing is happening. I think that image of you're just sort of throwing things out in the ether is something that a lot of people feel. And, um, you know, it can feel like sometimes a waste of time. That is natural. There are ups and downs in prayer. And the book talks about how to confront those, how to be okay with them, basically. Um, And also how to be attentive to the times in your prayer that God is responding, or you can see God responding. It's like any relationship, which is the primary image in the book. You know, not every single time that you're with a friend or a loved one is it going to be bells and whistles. Sometimes it feels a little boring. So I think one of the great reliefs for people is to know that they're not the only ones that struggle with dryness and distractions in particular. So yeah, you're you're just like everybody else and just like me. We'll get to you in a second because it's like interviewing a, a professional athlete about their <laughs> workout routine. But I love this metaphor so much of prayer as relationship. And, and you have this quote from Walter Burghardt in the book, which I just couldn't stop thinking about as soon as I read it. He writes, and you quote, prayer is a long, loving look at the real. What does that mean? I'm so glad you like it. Well, it's long because, you know, you can't just rush through it, basically. It's loving because it's done in the context of love. God loves us and we love God. It's a look, you know, it's contemplative, right? And 
Burkhart's insight in prayer is that it's often looking at what's around us, right? It's not simply looking at God as an abstraction or as, you know, whatever, whatever tradition, you know, Trinity or the Father or the Creator or Lord, but it's, it's also noticing where God is active in your daily life. I put a lot of definitions of prayer in there because the different ones appeal to different people. That's one that really grounds it for me. So I want to start working our way from the very outside into the heart of meaning here. So let's start with what I think many of our listeners might feel. It's like, listen, man, you know, feels a little bit silly. Yeah, I believe in God, I suppose, someone might say, but talking to him, I mean, do I have to do it? Do I have to do it in a prescribed way? It just feels like a little weird and you keep on saying relationship, but hey, man, only one side here is talking. So let's begin by confronting this sort of very rudimentary discomfort that many of us have. Yeah, very common. You know, why bother? First of all, if God knows what I'm thinking, right? And one of the things I try to invite people to see is how God is already active in their lives. And so for people who come to me who say that, or they'll say even more commonly, you know, I've never had any sort of encounter or experience with God in my prayer in my daily life. When you start to unpack their lives and you start to say, well, let's look at some moments where you've really felt moved or touched. Um, And they might say something like when my first child was born or The other day when I was at a funeral or, you know, I looked up at the sky and I felt this sense of, you know, awe. And to say, did you ever think that this is more than just your own reaction and that this is God reaching out to you, right? And really, you know, for people of faith, when you start to unpack it, you always find that there are experiences where they've already encountered God. And the other thing you have to say to them is, why are you asking me something about prayer? It's usually a sense of a desire for a relationship with God. And to say, where do you think that desire is coming from? Who plans that desire within you? So it's it's actually not so much that people don't believe it, because I think people do at heart believe that God desires a relationship with us. It's that to use one of my favorite words from a, a, a Jesuit friend of mine who died a few years ago, they're not encouraged to consider the things that already happened to them as as signs of God's presence in their life. So it's it's just encouraging them and getting them to notice what's already there. And then they then they trust and they can go further. You also remind us in the book that frequently things that we might not even recognize as prayer actually contain, you know, all the elements right there. You have this great anecdote in the book in which a woman comes to you and says, oh, you know, I feel really uncomfortable, Father, with prayer. So uh, every morning, however, I sit down and I meditate for an hour and you say to her something like, well, you know, you're 90% of the work work there. Yeah, it's like, you know, why not bring God into into the equation? But there are also other things I talk about in the book that, you know, for example, you're you're walking down the street and you see a homeless person. This is very common in New York. And you feel this sense of compassion and you start to think from your tradition of God asking us to care for the widow and the orphan or the person who's poor, right? And you start to think about that and you start to think, maybe God's inviting me to do something. And you just start to ponder that. And that's the beginning of prayer, right? And I think that oftentimes people just shut that down or they have a feeling that's really intense of sort of longing for more or wanting to know or wanting to be in connection with God. But again, they're not encouraged to continue. And I think these are moments where God is reaching out to us. And, you know, it's a question of saying yes or no. You know, again, in the Old Testament, we're given choices, right? So choose it. So choose to say yes to God. So when I sit down and pray, especially if I engage in what you so charmingly call petitionary prayer, and I think to myself, you know, as so many of us do, like, I really want to pray for that raise or that promotion or to ace that test or, you know, on a higher level that my health and the health of my family would would be all right. 
And then I think many of us have a moment in which we feel like that's a bit selfish. We're, we're asking for all these things when there's so much wrong in the world, when there's so much suffering, when there's so many human beings who, who need so much more help than us. And, and here you are seemingly saying, right, but that's actually God's way of reminding you of that suffering and your ability to affect it. Yeah. And also that it's okay to ask for things. Look at the Psalms. I mean, how many of the Psalms are, you know, they're asking for things. They're asking for help. When Abraham prays to God to spare the city, right? Is it Sodom, I guess? He's asking, would you help me? I mean, there's so many examples in the scriptures of people asking for help. So I think it's it's also part of being in an honest relationship with God. You know, if you need help for something as simple as like the vaccine, we pray for that in my Jesuit community every day. If I were to somehow not pray for that, for the vaccine and for an end to the pandemic, it would feel like there's a block in between me and God. Now, the key is keeping these things in perspective, right? So if your relationship with God is characterized solely by asking for things, it's a little strange. So let's take, so you and I are friends. Let's say we go out and I really need someone to help me with um, the Hebrew scriptures. I really need someone. And I don't ask you because I think, well, you know, he has plenty of people to ask. That would be bizarre, you know, for me not to ask you for some help. Or if you need help understanding some Christian thing or just need help in your life or whatever, it would be odd. It would be like a block. Now, the extreme is if we went out to dinner and all I did was ask you for things, our entire relationship was me asking for favors, you would say, well, that's a little strange too. So so it's, it's a balance. I mean, petitionary prayer and asking for things is part of our relationship with God, but it's, you know, it's not the whole thing. And so how are we, once we've entered into this relationship, once we've understood it as a relationship, is there anything we could do to try and ascertain what it is that God might expect or desire of us? Yeah. And I mean, I think beyond our tradition, it's, you know, God encountering us individually. And one of the things I talk about in the book, which is, I think, probably the most misunderstood and often ignored part of the spiritual life, is what happens when you pray. So beyond seeing God in your daily life, right, and kind of encountering God there, when you sit down and pray to look at the things that come up you know, emotions, feelings, memories, desires, insights. So for example, if you're doing your prayer, your, your three times daily prayer, and let's say you're praying for calm, something simple, right? In the middle of the pandemic, and you feel this great sense of calm, or you have a memory of a time when you felt connected to God or where you were traveling somewhere, or you were with your family or something, you just have this great, beautiful memory. I would suggest this is one way that God has of speaking to you, of, of communicating to you. And so to be attentive to that, to listen to that and to say, well, all right, maybe God is just kind of giving me some calm right now. And in terms of kind of the stuff we're called to, if you, in your prayer, a desire is awakened, right? Like I want to do more of X, Y, or Z, right? I want to do more charitable work. I want to do more writing, right? Just sort of take seriously the possibility that this is the way that God speaks to us. You know, how else would God talk to us other than interiorly? It's trusting that these things that happen in prayer can be, not all the time, but can be ways that God has of communicating with us. You touch on this mystery and on this feeling of literal awe that we get when that moment of, of communion with the divine and other human beings occurs in the book by sharing a deeply moving anecdote that has to do with, with your friend, Rob. Can you share it? I'd love to. So um, my friend, Rob, I'm smiling because he's a good friend is Jewish, like pretty much all of my friends in college and half of my friends now. And we've talked about this. Rob and I have a very long history. He gives me my Lenten penances every year on Ash Wednesday. In any event, 
I was in theology studies in Cambridge, Mass, and uh, Rob and his family, his family lives in Sharon, Mass, outside of Boston. So I was invited to a Seder, and I was right in the middle of my Old Testament course, right in the middle of it. So I knew everything about the Old Testament. I mean, you know, ask me now, and I probably forget, but I mean, I was right sort of at the top. So anyway, so we're at the meal, and it was his family, and they're lovely, and I've known them forever. And um, his mother at dinner asks, in addition to the formal questions, she started asking me other questions about like, well, why did you know Moses do this and blah blah blah. Well, I I had it on the tip of my tongue, and I said, oh, because of this. Well, what about Miriam and Aaron? Oh, blah blah blah. Well, what about the next book? Oh, blah blah blah. <laughs> and so Mrs. Schlackman, that's that's her name, turned to Rob, my friend, and said. Gee, Rob, why don't you know as much about uh, our tradition as your Jesuit friend? (laughs) So then as we were leaving, we took one step outside the door and Rob said to me, well, that is the last Seder I'm ever inviting you to. (laughs) So part two of the story is I'm in Israel and I'm telling this story to a Jewish guy. He was on our pilgrimage. He was on this Catholic pilgrimage because he teaches interfaith relations at a Jesuit school. Okay, so we have this Jewish guy who's on our Catholic pilgrimage. I'm telling him this funny story in front of the Western Wall, and I say to him that this is one of the people that I always pray for, Mrs. Schlackman, because she's just lovely, and his family and Rob's family, and I always pray, which is true for all of my Jewish friends when I'm at the Western Wall. I call them to mind. You know, there's a lot of them. It's HQ. Yeah. It is. I just, I just love it, and I just, I touch the wall. I've been there enough times, and I, it feels just really grounded and I just think for me, it's just a great place to pray for them by name. Anyway, so I'm telling the story to this fella and my cell phone goes off and, you know, I'm at the, in the precinct, whatever you call it. And I was like, the last thing I'm going to do is take out my cell phone. So I silence it. I go to the wall. I put my hand there as you know, I'm sure you've been there many times and I pray. I don't stick the paper in because I don't have it. And then, you know, after about five minutes, 10 minutes, I go back to the group and I say, I'm going to walk back through the old city by myself. I'm just, I just need sort of some time to sort of pray for these people. So I get outside near the Jaffa gate and I remember, oh, I had that cell phone call. I wonder who it was. So I take my cell phone out. It's Rob telling me his mother has just died. And I just, I say in the book that the story in the book is to illustrate not only how God works, but that It's very hard, even if you can't articulate what you're feeling, it's an experience of God. So I felt sad, of course, moved, shocked by the confluence of those things, surprised, overwhelmed, a little frightened, it's a little kind of scary, grateful, all these things together. And it's very hard to describe it. It's just very hard to describe what that felt like praying for her at the moment that my friend was calling me about her death. And I just, I just felt this great connection. And so one of the things that I, one of the reasons, again, I shared that is because just because you can't articulate it doesn't mean it's not from God. And I believe that it was from God. And I called Rob and, you know, I, you know, both kind of crying. I I said to him, you're not going to believe this. You're just not going to believe this. You're not going to believe where I am. I'm in Jerusalem. And you're not going to believe what I just did and where I just did it. So it was just an amazing, she was, and I also just loved her. She was lovely and lovely to me. And the family's been lovely to me. And she was, they, Mr. and Mrs. Schlackman were completely supportive of my Jesuit vocation. My joke was people say to me, what's the, what did people say most often to you when you entered the Jesuits? And I said, Mazel Tov. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they said. So it's just a story of how God works in very, very, let's say, personal and unique and individual ways. 
again, reminding us that this is not some abstraction or some theological precepts, but it's it's about a feeling, right? It's It's very emotional. It is. And, you know, that kind of stuff obviously doesn't happen to people or to me all the time. And I think one of the dangers of writing those kinds of things in a book is that people will say, oh, my gosh, I've never had an experience of that kind of confluence or that kind of coincidence. But that's okay. You know, I don't have them all the time either. And people do have them. But again, they're not encouraged to see them as ways of God connecting with you. Right. And I mean, come on, you know, you would have to really work hard to say that God wasn't involved in that in some way. So I think all of us who are serious about their own faith traditions have at least a mild case of envy when it comes to other people's. Mine is clearly your own. I want to talk about two things that I think Jesuits do that are just so incredibly moving and powerful, especially when it comes to sort of like unlocking the capacity to pray and to connect with the divine and to sort of like reach into these places within ourselves. The first one, which is something that I've thought about so often for so long, is the exercises. Tell us what that is. The first thing I want to say is, you know, there is always this kind of comparison that happens, you know, that assumes that like when I close my eyes, I'm flooded with this sense of God's presence. But as I said, you know, my prayer is just as dry as yours is sometimes, you know, and so... But the, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius are a four-week retreat. Normally, people do them 30 days straight in silence, which is the way I did it. Some people do it what's called in daily life, right? So you can kind of do it day to day, you know, with your regular life. It's kind of leading the person imaginatively through the, the life of Christ. And so you imagine yourself, this is called Ignatian contemplation, in the scripture scenes. You say, okay, so for example, the the call of the first disciples where he goes to Capernaum and calls Peter and Andrew and James and John by the Sea of Galilee, you imagine yourself there and you see what comes up. And the same kinds of things that would come up in your daily prayer come up, but often a little more intensely, right? Sort of a desire to live a more holy life or to follow Jesus, you know, if you're a Christian. And it's a it's a way of kind of encountering God and Jesus for us in a very personal way. So that's, you know, I've done that twice in my life. Uh, and it's, it's pretty profound. But that that style of prayer is, you know, as you were talking about, I, I think every Jew should buy this book too. That style of prayer is accessible for everyone. Just trying to imagine yourself into these scenes or situations or, or relationships, not, again, as abstractions, but as very concrete, personal settings. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking you or, you know, any of your listeners or any anyone who's Jewish, you know, could, you, you do this already. So, for example, if you're at Temple and you hear someone talk about the story of the burning bush, okay, you instantly have something that's called to mind. Now, maybe it's from the Ten Commandments or maybe it's something that's a little more abstract, but you already are doing that when someone is recounting a story, you know, Moses taking off his shoes and it's such a, I just love the whole image is just so beautiful. So Ignatian contemplation invites you to take that a step further and actually really Close your eyes and imagine it and imagine what it would be like either to be Moses or to watch Moses or, or to watch the bush. I mean, you know, I could imagine a whole meditation where you're just seeing the bush burn. And and what does that say to you about God and, and God's sort of eternity and God's power and God's, I'm having a hard time articulating now that that image is such a strange image. What does it mean? And so when you put yourself in the scripture and you imagine yourself, all sorts of things can come up that might not happen when you're just kind of hearing it. Right. I think our equivalent, if anything, would be the Talmud, which captures not edicts, but conversations and invites us to literally step in 
to a conversation that started thousands of years ago but hasn't ended yet because we are part of it. That's how tradition gets made. And in terms of the prayer in my book, the, the insight would be that, you know, what happens within you that is raised up, like let's say you're praying about the burning bush and you have an insight. And I don't know what the insight might be. Let's say the insight would be that um, God is surprising. Let's just say something like that. Just, Moses is obviously surprised. And you start to think about ways that God is surprising you in your life. Now, you know, I would suggest that this is God raising these things up in you, right? So God, in a sense, using that beautiful passage, right? And raising something up, kind of giving you an insight, teaching you something. So that's that's the second step, to trust that those things that occur in your prayer are really things to be reverenced, are really holy things. Unless we think that the book and the Jesuit tradition contains nothing more than than sort of flowery invitations to imagination. You also teach us about the examine, which is another sort of like real hardcore methodology for prayer that I really love. How is it built? So this is along the lines of a long, loving look at the real. It's essentially a review of your day where you can see God having passed. Now, here's another thing from Moses. You know, God says to Moses, you cannot see my face. You will see me pass, right? The insight is that it's often easier to see God as God has passed, right? I mean, God, we, we often say, oh, now I look back on that experience in my life and I see where God was. Well, the examine is that in miniature. And so basically you look at your day and you look to see where God is. And there's, there's five steps. First, you place yourself in the presence of God. However you understand that, just so you know, it's not just a, a monologue, right? You, you know, just imagine yourself with God. And then you call to mind things you're grateful for. So at the end of my day, I'm going to call to mind this conversation because I just, I love talking to you. I mean, something like that and say, thank you, God. And boy, isn't it amazing we have this friendship and how did that come to be? And just, you know, to be grateful. And then the next step is a review of the day. You look through the day and just sort of see where you encountered God, you know, maybe in big ways or small ways. And where did I turn away from God? The next step is sorrow for, you know, whatever failings. I mean, none of us are perfect and ask God for forgiveness. And then you ask God for grace for the next day. So basically it's looking to see where God was and it can really jumpstart your, your spiritual life, especially now, because so many of us are focused on negative things. We tend to forget that there are some things to be grateful for. So the examine is a great review of the day. You write towards the end of the book, a sentence that really struck me as very profound. And, and, and I, want to, I want to ask you what you meant by it. You wrote something like, the older I get, the simpler my prayers grow. What did you mean by that? I don't know why that is, but um, maybe it's because I've, you know, I've meditated over like all the gospel scenes and, or maybe it's because I'm busy and God just wants to give me simple prayer. <laughs> my spiritual director, the person I see to talk about my prayer, I said to him, you know, I feel a little guilty because I'm not doing a lot of this imaginative contemplation. I'm not doing a lot of, you know, praying. I'm just kind of sitting in God's presence. See, even I have these problems. I said, so I feel guilty. And he was like, you feel guilty sitting in God's presence? I said, well, <laughs> you know, not much as he said, well, you know, you're maybe because you're so busy and your, your life has so many kind of things and words and articles and books and stuff like that, that God wants to just give you some rest. So it's, it's pretty simple sometimes. Now, sometimes I do imagine myself in scripture scenes and, you know, insights and memories and emotions, but sometimes it's just often what's called centering prayer. You just, you're in God's presence and that feels great. One of my prayers I'll tell you recently is I, I love, I fall in love with Israel I've fallen in love with the Sea of Galilee. We've talked about this. And, you know, one of my prayers now is I imagine myself at the Sea of Galilee, just, just with Jesus saying nothing, 
And that's okay. I think it's pretty good to spend time with Jesus. And a lot of times it's just sort of like, yeah, it just puts things in perspective. I mean, for me too, just to hear you say it, because this notion that even a simple image like that is a prayer, right? It's not, a prayer doesn't have to be like, oh, our Father art in heaven, et cetera, et cetera. Give us now our daily bread. It's just just this image, just this one powerful moving image that really does what to you? What does the image do to you? Let's lie, lie, lie on the couch and tell us all about it. Uh, it calms me. It makes me feel less alone. It puts things in perspective. I mean, when I look at Jesus in my prayer, I see the person I want to be like. And it's okay. You know, you, your point about, you know, it doesn't have to be the the Our Father or the Shema prayer or any beloved prayer, which is fine. Those are fine to say. And I say those all the time. But it to compare it to a relationship, it's like walking on the beach with someone that you you love, you know, your wife, your children, your parents, whoever, right? Your boyfriend or girlfriend. And you don't always have to be saying something. And so if you are walking on the beach with someone you love or in the mountains or wherever, and you say nothing, you don't come back and say, well, that was a waste of time, right? <laughs> you could say that, you know, as I say in the book, this is from a friend of mine, that sometimes there's, a, there's an even deeper level of conversation going on. I love that image of just, or, or taking a ride in a car with a friend. You don't have to talk all the time, especially if you know the person. So a lot of times my prayer with God is pretty, it's pretty simple. And so anyone listening who, who might've thought, well, you know, I've been thinking about praying for a while, not exactly sure. Step one is obviously to buy and read Learning to Pray. That's, That's right. non-negotiable. That's, you know, <laughs> a, a rabbinic decree. <laughs> Step two, is there anything that you sort of found in, in your own travels is a great gateway drug to prayer? Yes, absolutely. Which is this, which is to say to yourself, all right, why am I interested in prayer? Why am I listening to this podcast with this Jesuit priest about prayer? Why do I feel that longing? Why do I, when I hear these two guys talk about their prayer, feel a desire? Well, it's to trust that this is the way that God is calling you. How else would God move you other than to place within you the desire for prayer, the desire for a greater encounter with God? And so to trust that this is not just your curiosity, that this is a call. And you know what that does is that it makes it less lonely and it sort of strengthens the person because they say, it's not just me sort of blindly following, it's actually my responding to God's invitation in my life. So that really can open things up. One of my favorite lines, I saw this in a retreat house in New Jersey on a little plaque. And you know, I think sometimes 90% of the spiritual life can be encapsulated by slogans or things that seem cheesy, but- Things you could put on a pillow, yeah. You know, like let go, let God, which is brilliant. But the, the plaque said, that which you seek is seeking you. So just, I just think that's brilliant. It's God who's doing the seeking. And so trusting that makes it a lot less lonely. And it gives you a lot of confidence too. God is seeking. Always. I mean, just look at, you know, the entire Hebrew scriptures. I mean, really, it's God seeking humanity, God's desire for a relationship with humanity. And, you know, our response or no non-response, for some reason, David comes to mind. You know, he responds well sometimes. He doesn't respond well all the time. And it's, it's God's faithfulness and fidelity, right? The covenant. And so God's always reaching out to us. The question is, are we saying yes? You know, not only in our daily lives, but, it, but in our prayer. And so here's hoping that anyone interested in this relationship seeks back. But I want to switch gears a little bit now because we are talking to you in the very beginning of a very particular season for Catholics. It is now Lent. It is Lent. It is now we are speaking on day two of Lent. <laughs> and you have this tradition, which you mentioned briefly earlier in the show, in which Rob, your beloved Jewish friend and college roommate, does what now? Well, I'll tell you the story. So when I was at, at school at Penn and I was living in a house off campus 
I'd say largely Jewish, my roommates, my housemates, you know, we were talking about everything, you know, your college kids. And so Len came up and I remember this conversation vividly over dinner. And I said, well, you know, they said, what are you going to give up? And I said, well, whatever. And they said, well, who decides what you give up? <laughs> and I said, well, I do. And they said, quote, well, what is that? What, what, how hard is that? You decide what you give up? You, you, that's ridiculous. Someone else should tell you who to, what to give up. And I said, what do you mean? They said, we should tell you what to give up. <laughs> So the first year was orange soda, which I was a little addicted to, and snowball pastries, which for some reason I was eating and eating. And they were like, that's what you should give up. So for the next couple of years, they would tell me what to give up. They'd all get together and tell me what to give up. And it, it sort of hardened into a spice, a candy, and a food. Okay. So then Rob took it over. We lived together for a couple of years after graduation. And then he religiously, not to coin a phrase, he calls me or now he emails me every Ash Wednesday. Now his, then his wife got into it, who was Catholic, but is now <laughs> Jewish and his son, who's now in college. And so uh, yesterday on Ash Wednesday, I got my Lenten penance. And it is, drum roll please. It is mints, M-I-N-T-S, mints. And he had a whole list of what kind of mints I had to avoid. Um, I don't know how to say that the name. It's the spice, za Zatar. There you go. Which I know is big in... Israeli food because Huge. it's everywhere. Yeah. So none of that. And then, oh, and waffles, can of waffles. And so those are my three things. Every Ash Wednesday, like at 7 a.m., I've gotten this. So, you know, my Lenten penance is from my Jewish friend, Rob. I just love it. I think it's great. This is like 40 years now. But, you know, here's the, here's the problem. He's running out of stuff. You know, he's running out of spices. Oh, the, you can't repeat? No, he, he, no, he doesn't like to repeat. He thinks that's kind of... And one of the jokes was, this is, this is a little risque. When I entered the Jesuits, one of the things to give up was sex. That was one year. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I've already, I'm already doing that. He's like, no, I just want to make sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just call it that every year and we'll be fine. Yeah, so I just think it's great. And now what's happened, I mentioned it on NPR a couple of years ago. And then I was on The Late Show with Colbert and he was fascinated. For some reason, it fascinates people. And now people ask me, has Rob told you? <laughs> As Rob told you, your penance is yet. I was like, no, it's not Ash Wednesday yet, you know? So I got to wait till like 7 a.m. And sure enough, bingo. Now, what, now, I can't say the word either. Chag. 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 Chag Samer. Okay, so that was the subject line of the email. <laughs> <laughs> Chag Samer, Father Jim. Here's what you're not going to be having for the next 40 days. Well, exactly. Yes. Incredible. Father James Martin, I am ever so grateful for your friendship, for your wisdom, and for this incredible book. Thank you so much for being our guest. Vavakasha. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I have the world's biggest mazel tov to my mother, Elise Butnick. It was her birthday on March 6th, so it, we skipped it over the weekend, but there was no episode last week. I mean, I'm doing the best I can here. She will not want me to tell you how old she is, but I will tell you that she does now qualify for a vaccine in Florida. <laughs> Happy birthday, Elise. I should say that March 22nd, I'll qualify for a vaccine here in Connecticut because 45 and over, baby. And my Mazel Tov this week is also a happy birthday. It's to our super listener and chief Quaker and chief curler and chief birder, Andy Boone. He turned 47 this week. Would you say he's your favorite Quaker? Top seven. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave them on the phone, 914-570-4869. 
We often come to you live. We're booking that stuff again. Yeah, baby, we are. We're coming live. We're getting vaccinated and coming straight to you to breathe on you. To book us, email producer Josh Cross. That's cross with a K at jcross at tabletmag.com. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh and Sarah. Our associate producer is Bobby. Our artwork is by Esther and our theme music is by Golem. Our mailbox theme by Steve-O. Our Keepa knitter this week is Andrew Levin and rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Avram Goodstein of Congregation Beth Sholem in Anchorage, Alaska. And we come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.